let's take this thing live. Okay, let's do it live. Yeah. So I'm gonna go ahead and kick this guy off. Then I think you got it last week, and you know I'm feeling, feeling like uh, I, I want to be heard first one of these times. You better take the mic because I'm not gonna let you have it. <laughs> All right, well, you know, this one's going to be in your wheelhouse, that's for sure. So I, I really had to uh, dig into this and try to understand a bit more about it, but uh, I'm counting on you. But I'm more more than I'm counting on our guests. So let's go and kick this off. This is episode number 40 of The Hot Isle. Uh, my name is Brent Piotti, and with me we have Mr. Brian Carpenter. Yes, sir. It was Good nice of you to call me sir. Mr. Well, you know, we're both, we're both gentlemen, scholars, and fathers. Uh, we actually do have a scholar with us, and we'll introduce him in just a bit. But the goal of the show today is to educate you guys on on this kind of evolution and and potential uh, demise of various storage and networking protocols. So we've got someone that's been in the business and in the industry for for a very long time. Um, and we'll talk about um, what he's doing today, but this guy's a, a a member of a lot of like board of directors uh, for the things that we know and love, right? So um, he's actually live uh, at the Data Storage Innovations Conference. Um, so it's basically a an end user storage conference for all the the SNEA folks. Uh, so with us today we have none other than Dr. Jay Metz. Jay, how you doing this morning? Hey, how you doing? Excellent. How about yourself? I'm doing wonderful. Yeah, got I hear sure. a little chatter in the background. Uh, where where are you calling from? Well, you know, it, it's uh, it's the the joys of, of working and living on the road. This is a hotel bar that they've got closed off, and I've kind of snuck in to try to get as much quiet as I possibly can, and you can see how well that's working out. <laughs> I love it. You think that the, the quietest place in, in the hotel is the bar, but I think your head's in the right place. Um, you know, that's where, you know, the booze is as well, so... At least yeah, you can enjoy your time on the podcast while enjoying a taste a huge of beverage. Giant chain and lock on that door. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where the good stuff is. <laughs> well, very good. So, Jay, for those that uh, don't know who you are, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what you do day to day. Sure. So, I am a research and development engineer for advanced storage for the office of the CTO in the UCS group for Cisco. Uh, Cisco Systems, and I am also on the board of directors for a number of storage industry groups, including SNEA, which is where I am today, uh, the Fiber Channel Industry Association, also known as FCIA, and the Non-Volatile Memory Express Group, or NVMe. And uh, so I do an awful lot of, of storage stuff, everything from, you know, uh, the, the deterministic block file object you name it if it involves storage i'm i'm pretty much the storage generalist that uh that that is not afraid of to, of embarrassing myself on podcasts <laughs> well very good now we're, we're glad that we have you today but I, I would say that you're more than a generalist right if we look at your your past you've you've done many things um you've worked for the likes of apple q logic and you've been with cisco now for a very long time and the fact that you're on all these multiple board of directors leads me to believe that you have a bit more insight than just being a generalist, as you put it. So thanks for being humble, doctor, um, which, which we have to go into that story, by the way, too. We, I would love to understand kind of your, your, your background in education, too, and that transition um, into technology. So if you could quickly kind of cover that um, and uh, let our listeners know a little bit about, you know, kind of what drove you to technology. Uh, money. Really, ah. actually. 
Fair. No, it's uh, so so. Actually, it's. It, uh, I'll try to keep the the story short. I, I came in a very eclectic way through the back door into technology. I actually was a um, an academic when it came to human communication and technology. So my 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 doctoral dissertation so many years ago was about how people became affiliated with one another through the use of technology what was to become social media way long before it was actually called social media. So my doctoral dissertation was actually on, um, on, on how people connected through the use of technology. And the Internet was the key focus, but it also applied to the telephone, CB radios, you know, telegraph, all that kind of stuff. And then um, when I was uh, a, a young professor and uh, I had always decided that I was going to be a, a consultant to actually make the real money, but do what I love to do, which was teach. And then, uh, this was back in the late 90s, and I started my own consulting company and made more in two months than I made as an entire year for my salary for a professor. I'm like, you know what? There may be something here. And so um, I left academia and started working on my own consulting company. And uh, eventually got more and more more technical and started working in servers and stores. And I really fell in love with the store stuff. Eventually got uh, invited to Apple to join them as a system engineer over in England. And basically the rest became history. I just became a very focused person on, on storage technology. And, and, uh, and I love it. So that's where I am. That's a short, expurgated version. No, that's great. You know, it's actually funny. Um, so <clears throat> we do a, a segment every week called This Week in Tech History. And uh, your background actually lends itself very, very well to a recent announcement uh, that is all over social media. And, um, and it's, the, it's, the, it's the announcement that Microsoft is going to buy LinkedIn for oh, somewhere yeah. around $26 billion. Um, yeah, I'm sure like, you heard of it. I have. It's, it's, it's sort of like when Facebook bought WhatsApp and everyone went, what? What's mm-hmm. up with that? Yeah, well, yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. What do you, What do you think about that? Well, I mean, if their history with you know buying Skype and and that sort of thing is any indication, probably not much. Um, <laughs> it's, no, there's a. <laughs> it's 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 a curious it's a curious thing for their portfolio. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see what they decide they want to do with it because. The, the human capital is really where the, the benefit for LinkedIn is. Um, and unless they, I mean, I can't see Microsoft wanting to get into that kind of human services, you know, organization. I mean, unless they want to do some sort of thing with like Facebook is doing and, and just branch out from there, it, which is possible. But I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Do you, you know, use, uh, for what you do, do you use SlideShare to put your presentations out there after you're done with a, a conference? Usually, it's done by the conference organizers. And some of them use SlideShare. Some of them have their own platforms. And so, I'm curious if you feel like people will still be as inclined to use something like SlideShare, given that now it's Microsoft's property as compared to LinkedIn itself's property. Oh well, you know, realistically, it's all going to come down to what's most convenient for the end user. You know, if it if it winds up being much more convenient to stay where they are, then great. You know, if it's if it's much more difficult to do it, then they're going to move. It, it, it'll be that simple. And and also, do you feel like um, I mean, do you feel like LinkedIn is is in its prime as far as a uh, a communication technology, a communication of who you are as an employee, or uh, are we past that, and or have people started to move on for various reasons? Um, 
I, I don't know if it ever did reach its peak, to be honest. I don't know if it ever really met its potential in terms of what it conceptually was able to be doing. I think the big problem that LinkedIn always had, and this is, of course, me talking, not, not you know, any of the organizations or, that I belong to, um, but they, they were effectively selling the people that were joining, right? And, and that always was something of a, of a bit of a reach because there were so many different people with so many different intentions that I never really saw a coherent model of, of value for the end users. I mean, the best part about the end users was that LinkedIn, whenever LinkedIn stepped out of the way. Um, so that's a very difficult business model to maintain, you know, is to not be there and still get money. So I, I don't know if they actually ever really did, you know, hit their stride. Um, but, you know, I guess, I guess Microsoft at that point in time, if you follow along that line of thinking, is, is, effect, is effectively buying all the, you know, all the eyeballs and earlobes of, of the people who are, who have a LinkedIn profile and are looking for work. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. I uh, I did see the most hilarious tweet to me today was the idea that uh, uh, Satya Nadella um, went to basically the, the highest end possible to get LinkedIn to stop emailing him. So I thought that was a pretty good tweet, and uh, we'll see how that works out. So as we move on from LinkedIn and kind of this week in tech history, uh, you know, Brent mentioned that you are a member of multiple boards, whether you're a director or a member of the promoters board. Is is this a thing that is um, associated directly with your with your Cisco uh, position and what you do for your job, or is this something that comes outside of that job and then also seems to, I guess, roll into other opportunities? Right? Did you start at the FCIA and then the other ones kind of added you in, or how did those things kind of work out? Well, I think it's one of those things is that uh, you show a little bit of competence and get punished for it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so when I first joined, actually, uh, I joined almost six years ago, uh, exactly. I joined on uh, Cisco on the 1st of, of, uh, of June in 2010, and here it is the 13th of June in 2016. Congratulations. And, and Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I, I'm, I'm still there. I still get a paycheck. And the very first week that I joined, they, put, they sent me off to FCIA. And the reason was because back then that was when the standard for fiber channel over Ethernet was in its final. Um, well, actually, it had just been published, and, and they were they were um, looking at doing the next iteration for uh, for what that was going to look like. And um, so my boss at the time said, "I want you to go. I want you to find out what's going on, and come back because I was a product manager at the time for FCOE, and we wanted to know exactly what the standard was doing." And, and how we were going to implement it. And in the process, it came to find out that there was a huge gulf between what was actually going on in the standards and what I was reading about in um, in, in the trade magazines. There was just so much misinformation. I don't think a lot of it was intentional. Some of it was, but um, they, they just people just got it wrong. They just did not understand how it all worked. It, nobody had actually sat down and explained to them you know, what the technology was, what the the industry association was, what the standard, nobody knew, nobody had a clue, except for those people who are in the standards body. Um, and so I, I started trying to put things into plain English, and then they said, well, you know, you know, we don't actually have anybody on the SNEA, um, you know, organization, would you like to, you know, get involved in SNEA? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, sure. I'm already, uh, I'm already kind of doing that same thing, so it dovetails pretty nicely. And then the next thing I know, it was uh, NVM Express, um, the the uh, 
the gentleman who was representing Cisco at the time had to step down for health reasons, and he suggested that I take his place. And, and so, yeah, so now I'm sitting on the, on the board of, of all three organizations. It just sort of rolled in together. That's awesome. So, and, this, and, and to, to a specific point, as you talk about the fiber channel industry and SNEA and all those things, uh, what prompted us to kind of reach out to you was a blog post you did on May 18th about the grand unification st storage theory uh, and about one storage protocol to rule them all or whether or not that was actually possible. And that's why we kind of wanted to chat with you today. Sure. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're obviously on a couple of different protocols and they all kind of sort of relate to, and some directly and some, you know, maybe indirectly relate to storage uh, of some sort. And, uh, you know, there isn't, there doesn't seem to be one protocol to rule them all. Um, and you kind of had the, uh, your, your general, why don't you go ahead and sum it up? Do you feel like there's one storage that can rule them all today? No, and I don't think that there's really one storage that can rule them all ever. Okay. Well, that's what, we were going to get to that at the end, but we can go ahead and hit it now since you're here. What is it that prevents Cisco or anybody from defining all of the different problems um, and making one protocol to rule them all? Well, because because you have diametrically opposite pressures and forces that are affecting the way that we make decisions about which ones to choose. So if you look at the way that customers are using storage, it's not one size fits all, which is what you need to have for any kind of storage protocol, you know, the one, the one storage room all. So right now you've got pulling in three different directions, if you think of it like a triangle, for example. On the one hand, you've got the, the big, massive, scalable systems that are you know, need to be anywhere around the world, and we need to be able to organize and analyze and manage and find and access all this big data um, uh, everywhere. And, and by necessity, you can't go from New York to Sydney, Australia in less than a microsecond. You know, it's going to take time. So this isn't this isn't a time bound thing. This is a a, a space bound or a, a breath bound problem. And so the tool that you use for solving that particular problem is not going to be specifically designed for something that is the other another pressure that we're getting, which is we need faster storage and we need more uh, or predictable latency and we need to have more, many more IOPS and those kinds of things. So. The pressure we're getting on that end of the triangle is that we need to get faster and faster and faster and 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 uh, performance, 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 and that's a different question that needs to be answered. And there's a different way of doing that. Um, and then the third major uh, force is how do you manage this stuff, right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of people who said, look, I just want to have my data. And I want to have my data accessible. I, it doesn't have to be particularly fast, and it doesn't have to be particularly grand. It needs to be able to access either one of those. But it doesn't. Ha the biggest thing here is that I need to be able to manage it. And so that's where a lot of the hyperconvergence story is coming into to play because they just they just want to have you know easy to roll out storage for their applications, and it doesn't have to be pretty big, and it doesn't have to be pretty fast. It just has to be usable. And so you use different types of storage environments for solving each of those problems efficiently. And quite frankly, because of the fact that the, the forces are pulling at each of the, the apex, uh, the apices, uh, what's that called? The, the, you know, the, the points, right? Or the points of the triangle. 
Um, because of that, you, you wind up having to have more than one tool in your toolbox. And that's why I don't think you can actually have one size to fit them all. So, so Jay, um, I think you know one of the things when I'm reading through your blog, uh, specifically, uh, you talked a lot about object or object came up, right? So mm -hmm. when I think of object initially, uh, my thoughts are you know what you talked about this one of the the points of the triangle, the kind of massively scale geo replicated things that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side of the coin, I also think of um, you know our latest. Uh, offering the DSSD, right, which is at a NVMe PCIe fabric, super fast, super dense, and that's an object store at heart. And those are two very different things. Um, so, what is what is your perception on on this? You know, what what allows massive scale geo-replication, and does that still fit in in that the school of thought? Um, well, so so I, I want to try to redefine the question a little bit because the yes they most they 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 may have both object store um paradigms but they're very different approaches to using object storage okay so so when you talk about a really large scalable system that that realistically has to be handled in effectively a read-only mode right you write once read only you know read everything else um, you know, these big, massive, big data scaling systems that are geographically dispersed. The best solution for that is an object store because that is the best way to approach that. The, the, the DSSD solution or the NVMe solution upon which you have object store, the object store is to, to address an issue with accessing NVMe storage at a scale that the underlying physical layer was not designed for. So PCIe buses are not meant for clustered systems. And so what DSSD has done brilliantly is apply an object store metaphor to be able to access and write data to a very, very fast underlying layer. But that is not the same application of a use case, even though they're both object stores. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I just, I, I, think it, I think it begs the question, right, of saying, I think there's the, there's this notion that <clears throat> object stores are one thing; they're this massive geo-replicated thing, and that's not always the case. And I just wanted to get your perspective because, I mean, you're on the board of directors at the NVMe Express, right? Um, so, love to just understand that. And I think you, you, you said it brilliantly. Um, kind of moving on though to NVMe, what? And, and I would say NVMe fabrics, right? For that matter, we've seen a handful of, of uh, manufacturers out there that are coming out with NVMe products, uh, fabrics, all that kind of stuff. What are what are your, your thoughts on that? And could that be this this silver bullet, so to speak? Um, no, it can't be. Well, yeah, I'm going to answer your question backwards, and, and that's why I said. No, uh, it can't be a silver bullet um, because the, the the there are distinct advantages and disadvantages to the to every layer on a on any kind of stack, right? So so it's important to note that when we start to look at a, at the way that we handle uh, a physical layer, like for example, if if everything we see is a one two and a half five ten gig solution, that's that's the law of the hammer. That's going to be our our application, right? Um, but there are other elements involved in, in how we get data from one place to the other. 
NVMe is a perfect example of this because the problem is that what we what we see with an NVMe solution that uses PCIe needs a little bit of modification if you're going to be looking at it from a remote outside the server perspective. And that's why NVMe over fabrics is important. And if you want to have NVMe over fabrics, what are the trade-offs that you need in order to be able to accomplish your goal? And, and does it really matter for what you're looking for? So, so for example, one of the things that is particularly um, good about NVMe over fabrics is that it provides a, a standards-based approach to applying a what, what's called a multi-queue metaphor from end-to-end. In other words, we don't need unnecessary layers of abstraction in the network or on the transport layer to be able to get this to work. And we can scale it really large as long as we don't artificially insert layers of abstraction. Right? And by layers of abstraction, I mean things like um, in a hyperconverged system, you would have a, an abstraction layer between the transport and the file system um, that would minimize the effectiveness of a true NVMe approach from a host into the storage because that abstraction layer is in the middle. And then you couldn't scale, you know, not easily anyway, based upon uh, on the cores inside the system, which is how NVMe becomes a very efficient use of the protocol. But that also doesn't mean that you can't take advantages of other solutions. Like, for example, NVMe over Fabrics works with fiber channel. And if you happen to have a fiber channel environment or running a, a high-speed fiber channel environment, which is a purpose-built, dedicated storage network, you can take advantage of, of that without you know, um, you know, having to do too much heavy lifting. I mean, it's basically a, a driver um, you know, a driver upgrade if you've already got a fiber channel system in place. Or if you happen to be using um, or, or wish to use some sort of RDMA-based protocol, you can apply an RDMA-based metaphor to, to that. So it, it, can, it can be used in addition to other benefits for whatever purpose that you're, do, you're using. It's not pinned to a particular type of, of problem solving. And that's why it, it helps to look at a cross-section of the technology to see where does this sweet spot actually fit for your particular use case. And so when we look at use cases, right, we're, we're generally familiar with like NVMe and then NVMe over PCIe. So we have a couple of questions for you just to kind of understand it further. And one is, as we see NVMe as like a protocol and then PCIe as the physical interface that we're using, and then we get into things like PCIe fabrics and stuff like that, is there, are there other physical interfaces that people can leverage for NVMe that we're just not, that Brent and I are not thinking about today that maybe you're thinking about, whether it be through the boards or through Cisco and things like that? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we can just even just go to the standard. We don't even have to talk about the boards or, or, or Cisco in particular. I mean, the, the standard itself has, has done a really good job of, of isolating and separating out the NVMe protocol from an underlying transport layer and making it agnostic, to your point, right? So, so realistically, the question becomes, if I've got, these, if I've got this uh, host and I've got a target, what's the best way to have them communicate the most efficiently? That's the question that we have to answer. Now, if you've got a PCIe-based system, the host, and I'm sort of using the host and CPU synonymously here, right, and the target are all on that same shared memory space. That's what PCIe does, right? There's no translation in a PCIe environment from a CPU to memory on that CPU. So that's, that's a, a really good 
way of approaching this. So that, that relationship between the host and his target is very close. And it doesn't matter quite as much as to where you start to put things like submission queues. Now, a submission queue is where you actually take a command and you put it into a queue and then you tell the target, hey, I've got a queue. It's like, a, it's like you know, the old automats, you know, or you're in a restaurant and you say, oh, order up. And the waitress has to come and pick up the order and bring it back to the table. So that's kind of what happens inside of an NVMe system with PCIe. Basically, the application puts in uh, the command and goes, oh, order up. And the target says, oh, I got to go get this. And so it goes over to the host, uh, the CPU, and says, oh, I'm going to take this out of the queue. I'm going to process it. And then I'm done and puts back uh, you know, the bill at the, uh, at the end of the day, right? You know, sticks the bill on top of that spiky thing that you see in the restaurants. If you want to do this over, over a network, that's not really all that great because that means that you have to go all the way over the network and say, I've got a command, order up. And that means that somebody has to come all the way back over the network to pick it up, go all the way back over the network to start processing it on the on the storage side. And then when it's done, go all the way back and, and set up the completion. So what NVMe or Fabrics does is it says, well, that we don't want to do that crossing of the of the wires so many times. What we want is we want to say, I'm going to take that that command and that ringing of the doorbell, and we're going to combine the two of them. And I'm going to put that into a, a capsule. Uh, it's a nice nice not overloaded phrase for storage. So I'm going to put it in a capsule. I'm going to send it over the wire, and when it gets to the target device, target device is going to take it out of the capsule and says, okay, here's the submission, and I'm going to put the command inside the submission queue, and I'm going to process it. I just eliminated three round trips. And so that's why NVMe over Fabrics becomes really useful because we're using that same process, but now that wire can be anything. That wire can be Ethernet, that wire can be InfiniBand, that wire can be Fiber Channel. As long as I can take that capsule, put it into whatever format that I want and send it across the wire, I'm good to go. And that's why that's why the, the PCIe metaphor may not be good for extended solutions uh, at scale, because PCIe was not a fabric-based technology. It's a bus-based technology. And so um, you can extend it, but it, there's other ways of doing this that already have some history behind it. And, uh, and, and that's why using network protocols that are well-known for storage becomes something of an advantage. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. So technically, I guess, uh, maybe it's already being done, and I'm just not aware of it. You could have geographically dispersed NVMe over Ethernet between two continents, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get the same latency as you would with a uh, with a bus type experience, but you can still use that same NVMe protocol. Well, I want to hesitate that kind of enthusiasm. I mean, uh, uh, the the NVMe is based entirely upon the idea that you're not going to, or NVMe over Fabrics is based entirely on the idea that you're not going to add more than ten microseconds to latency from a normal PCIe-based NVMe. So we're not adding any more than 10 microseconds. And you didn't, you didn't you, say milliseconds. You said microseconds. I said microseconds. Okay. So we're talking, we're talking really short distances here. Okay. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't take that information, and this is where the object storage comes into play, right? You, can't, you can take that information, and you can turn that into um, a, a, a different approach that is much more suitable for low, uh, long latency storage solutions, like like Object, for example. So this is one of those things where you want to have the right tool in the toolbox for the job that you need. Like 
you know, so if you've read my blogs, you know that I rebuild Jeeps. You, you could probably do it with a, a Swiss Army knife. I wouldn't want to try. Um, but the, the fact that you have a multi-tool doesn't necessarily mean that that's always going to be the best case for all of your situations. And NVMe is designed specifically, that's that triangle again, that, that we need to go faster and faster and faster. And that tool is great for faster and faster and faster, but it's not so great for longer and longer and longer. For that, you need to have much more resiliency and robustness in both the network and the protocol to, to be able to handle that. So it's not really appropriate for uh, long distances of, across the globe. Okay. So we've mentioned, you've, we've mentioned with some of these other boards, right? So you mentioned um, essentially uh, FCIA, which <laughs> is, you know, kind of centers around FCOE a little bit. Um, and then, you know, there's SNEA and some of the things around fiber channel and things like that. And then we have this NVM Express. And from, from an outsider's perspective, what I don't understand is what is Cisco's um, perspective here? And is there, because I know I can go consume an FCOE and a fiber channel and an Ethernet uh, and all of those things, even kind of like from a unified fabric perspective from Cisco, where does NVMe fit in this conversation from Cisco's perspective? Well, NVMe has a, a bunch of different applications, um, and and I think we're, it's still an embryonic and nascent technology from a market perspective. I mean, it's been in development for seven years and change, um, but from a market perspective, it's it's really just starting to get into its own. And as you know, Cisco's got a really large customer base. Each has their own particular problem. So we're looking at it from both inside the server, outside the server, um, you know, solutions that are uh, everything from caching based, you know, because NVMe based caching inside the server is a, is a logical starting point, you know, especially with PCIe, all the way to, you know, system scalable solutions that we, you know, we're thinking about offering down the road. Um, so we're looking at the, the gamut of the technology and, and um, of trying to approach it from the, the, the most holistic perspective as we can. Okay. So uh, is there a, is there a, um, how do I say this? Is there a, maybe it's, maybe it's too NDA, but is there a product or something that is headed towards being able to serve NVMe for Cisco? Or is that, are you too far down the, are you further up the research path for that? Is there like, for instance, are we going to see Nexus with, with um, PCIe fabric or some other NVMe implementation in, in 2016? Well, that's it, a fair question, and it very could well be uh, you know, an NDA discussion, but I work primarily on the R&D side, not in the product side. Okay. So I'm, I'm not really privy to an awful lot of the, the stuff that's happening on, on the product management perspective uh, anymore. So I'm afraid I couldn't answer that question if I, even if I knew it. Okay. Um, well, then let's move on. We, you know, one of the reasons we, besides the fact that we wanted to talk about cool things like NVMe, um, the 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 name of this podcast is going to be Fiber Channel is dead, right? Um, and it's always the same thing, right? Tapes dead. I can't. I mean, everything you, backups dead. All these whatever. Everything's dead. Um, and but there's there's long been an argument that Fiber Channel was dead or gonna die. Um, it happened with iSCSI. Uh, it happened with FCOE. So uh, I mean I assume that 2016 2017 is the year that people stop consuming Fiber Channel altogether because no data center needs it anymore. Or or how's that going to go? Yeah, I never really quite understood the fascination or the desire for a technology to die, especially storage technology. Um, and, and this is a this is kind of a genuine wonderment for me because the reality that I've been able to see 
is that the most persistent layer in the data center is storage. And uh, I, I mean, I walked into a, you, you brought up tape, I walked into a, uh, a tape warehouse that had 150 exabytes of tape because they did seismic ge uh, geologic surveys. And they just, they, the, the boats came in with, with these, uh, these massive amounts of, of tape. And as far as I can tell, that, you know, that was just one company that does this. And that's certainly going to keep the, the technology alive for a very long period of time. Um, the same thing with fiber channels. You know, fiber channel is a, um, a dedicated, purpose-built storage network that answers a, a very big problem for a lot of, a lot of companies, which is, you know, how can I, how can I have a fix-it-and-forget-it storage network um, in, in a way? I mean, I'm not, not saying that any storage network is or any storage product is perfect, but, but there's a, a very well-deserved reputation for reliability and availability when it comes to fiber channel. Um, I can put 10,000, 20,000 nodes on a fiber channel network, and if it's designed properly, it won't bat an eye. Right? And by design property, I'm talking about, you know, make it highly available, SAN AB fabrics, you know, proper oversubscription and fan-in ratio, you know, the, the way that you're supposed to design, you know, fiber channel systems. Um, and that is very important because people don't always think of the intention of a network when they start talking about the protocols, like the protocol says FCOE is going to kill fiber channel, uh, which I don't actually understand either because fiber channel and fiber channel over E are effectively the same thing. It just has to do with what the underlying wires. Um, but, you know, when iSCSI came out and said, well, you know, fiber channel is going to go away, well, there are two completely different problems to solve. One is a deterministic storage network. One is a non-deterministic storage network. It, it's One's based upon lossless environments where you you have you know a known quantity of your bandwidth and your oversubscription and the other is based on the exact opposite but you still want to have the connectivity right so it's one has to do with connectivity the other has to do with a much more you know robust situation over the years the technology has continued to improve so we've seen advancements in both iSCSI and fiber channel and FCOE and so on but they all serve a purpose and they all serve a point so so fiber channel over ethernet for example you know, it was designed to help consolidation of network resources when you got a really big network. So if you've got 10 gig, 40 gig, 100 gig pipes, and you want to have multiple types of storage, FCOE can be one of those types of storage. You can do FCOE and iSCSI on the same on the same wire. That's what it was designed for. It was specifically good for the the access layer where the servers lie because that's where your um, your underutilization of your links was the most prominent. You know, so it was it was built to be able to put wherever you needed it, whether you wanted to have it inside the server or you wanted to have it between switches or you wanted to have it the the, uh, the, the target. It, you could do whatever you wanted it to do, and of course, customers realized that you know what I'm making I'm saving a lot more money if I keep it here at the server side. Um, and then people say, oh, well, you know what? It didn't kill fiber channels, so it must have failed. I'm like, well, yeah, NFS, you know, has been around for a long time. Fiber channel came after NFS and. Fiber Channel didn't kill NFS, and iSCSI didn't kill Fiber Channel, and you know we still have uh, we still have InfiniBand-based storage as well for you know for crying out loud because they all serve a particular purpose. They all have a particular place, and and I don't really understand the 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 need to you know to necessarily you know try to kill off anything. 
I think where that comes from is that, well, there is an inherent desire for people to try to simplify and, and solidify their technology, which is why the whole question about, um, you know, a, a, a one storage to rule them all comes into place because that goes to that management point that we were talking about earlier. They want to be able to manage things a lot easier. They want to be able to get the performance and they want to get the scalability and they want to be able to manage it all, you know, in, in one area. And, and unfortunately, this is one of those things where you know, I, I'm not a sales guy, so I'm not going to tell somebody something that, you know, just to get a sale here. You can't get everything, you know, you can't always get what you want. You know, get used to disappointment. You're going to have to choose at best two out of the three because they're diametrically opposite forces. And, and, and unfortunately, that means that we're going to have to have, you know, uh, we're going to have to have multiple ways of solving problems, you know, from, from now until the foreseeable future. And Fiber Channel doesn't look like it has any real evidence of slowing down despite, you know, predictions of its, its utter demise. <laughs> All right, Jay. So I think you 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 artfully described Fiber Channel, right? Designed to be a storage area protocol, lossless. Um, but I would say you know does have a limited distance. You brought up this notion of uh, deterministic versus non-deterministic. Can you quickly describe those? And then I've got a follow-on question after that. Yeah, sure. So so basically, if you think about the way that we handle uh, Ethernet networks. Um, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense to put your services in every single box on an Ethernet network, right? That would be kind of foolish to put your DHCP intelligence in every switch, right? That's just that's a recipe waiting to disaster, but uh, uh, disaster waiting to happen. But think about this, for example, when we set up an Ethernet network, a traditional Ethernet network, I'm not talking about cost networks or, or you know, lease fine or the more advanced stuff that we've been seeing in the last couple of years, but a traditional hierarchical Ethernet network if you think about the way that, it, that we put it together, we effectively set it up and then we go back in later and we break it down. We, we block off the connections that we make. Think about spanning tree is a perfect example, right? We set everything up and then we're like, oh, we got to stop it from actually working in, in some cases because we don't want to create loops and, and so on. Um, and the, the metaphor is very basic, right? In a fiber channel network, you know the relationship between the devices before you ever begin. That's what I mean by deterministic. That relationship is a known quantity, and before you ever turn anything on, you know what's going to happen. In an Ethernet network, that's definitely not the case. You get servers going on all the time. You get uh, storage going on all the time. And, and basically, you, you may have a knowledge of what that relationship is going to be. More often, you don't. And... Um, and that's the, I mean, unless you have like a single switch environment, I'm talking about r relatively larger systems. So, but the idea here is that we don't have the network have uh, a knowledge of the relationship between the devices before they actually start. It's always after the network's been established. That's what I mean by, by deterministic versus non-deterministic. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so, you know, you talked about fiber channel, for instance, or let's just say mm -hmm. the fiber as a medium. Uh, being used for things like NVMF, right? So the uh, NVMe over fabric or, or on, yeah, what is it? NVMe on fabric. Um, so, you know, encapsulating, you know, multiple um, commands, right? So is there a way to make Ethernet deterministic and lossless? Something like, you know, I, I thought of FCOE, right? The mm -hmm. encapsulating um, and then splitting the traffic, things like that. So is does FCOE handle making Ethernet deterministic and lossless? 
Yeah, yes, you're spot on. That's that's exactly how FCOE works. So, so effectively, whenever you have, whenever you have a, a, a fiber channel network, you, you basically need to have a place to go, and a, a, a lossless way of getting there. And the the where you figure out where the place to go is that the fabric you actually you actually log in devices. So a device will log into the fabric, and then you have to log into another device. And that's how you the the packets know where to go or the frames know where to go. And in a in a normal traditional fiber channel system, it's the lossless is created through buffer to buffer credit systems. In Ethernet, you can do the exact same thing. You use the same routing protocol, you use the same login procedure, and that's fiber channel. That's what you do. And then what we do is we separate out the Ethernet traffic from lossless to lossy by effectively creating classes of service. So I'll have a, a class of service that is lossless, and I'll have a class of service that is lossy. And you, when you put the packets on the wire, or you put the frames on the wire, it knows which class of service to go into. And then what they do is that if it's on the lossless environment, you can pause that class of service when congestion gets bad. So in a fiber channel system, you effectively have a, um, a source-based credit mechanism. That's the buffer-to-buffer -buffer credits. And in fiber channel over Ethernet, you have a receiver-based credit mechanism, which is the receiver says, pause it, I can't take it anymore, and they'll stop for a little while, and then it'll start back up again. But the functionality is exactly the same. It's both deterministic. It's both completely separated from anything else that's going on. And, it, and the same functionality happens. It's just so that the wire itself is a bit different. Okay, so so we've achieved some level of deterministic uh, you know, features and losslessness over with FCOE, right? Mm -hmm. um, Which, by the way, we actually we we use the same process for Rocky and NVMe over fabrics using Rocky and and so on. It's the same process. Okay, yeah, you see, I think you use encapsulation, right? Was the the kind of word that, that's always been tossed around from the FCOE perspective, and now well, well, not just the encapsulation, but I'm talking about the actual lossless part. Rocky is a layer two solution over converged Ethernet, which that's what it means, RDMA over converged Ethernet. And that means RDMA on Ethernet using pause frames to maintain a lossless deterministic relationship between the host and the target. It's the same technology. Huh. Very cool. All right. So I'm a customer. I have a green field. There's nothing there. I have nothing swaying me one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Why would someone choose... FC over FCOE or vice versa? FC over FCOE exclusively? I mean, that, those are my choices? Maybe not. Yeah, I, yeah. I yeah, mean, well, go I mean, for it. But. I, I, think, I think at, you know, obviously there's, there's, the, there's the SAN area to deal with. Um, but are there other implications up the stack to where you could potentially use a 10 or 40 gig network for other traffic? Right, so I'm just trying to figure out why, if you get the same benefits of FC potentially on FCOE, mm -hmm. um, and then you get to utilize things like 40 and 100 gig Ethernet, what um, what would drive you to to use one over the other? So there's a number of different factors that that influence these kinds of decisions, and most of them actually are involved at the layer layer eight. Um, <laughs> very very few of them actually involve the technology itself. Um, uh, availability of of the you know the the price 
focused equipment has something to do with it. Um, the number of ports that you need for the solutions that you're looking for, the number of switches that you're looking at. Um, so at that point in time, cost, real estate, um, you know, how much of a footprint do you actually need? Those kinds of things. But as far as you're, you're leading towards the technology side, I think, I think one of the things that um, you know would be an influence. So let me let me explain um, what might be a, a two good reasons why you'd want to have um, uh, one for a fiber channel over Ethernet and one for fiber channel, so that you can kind of compare the two. Does it make sense? Yep. yep. Go ahead. Oh, all right. So, so if I had a relatively large system, and I wanted to have a team of people that was specifically focused on my storage network, that I knew that they were going to be responsible from the host all the way to the target, and do nothing but storage networking, Fiber Channel would be very appealing to me. They would have their own equipment. They would have their own links. They'd have their own cabling. They'd have their own budget. They'd have their own personnel and they would be responsible for a particular type of, of traffic. And then they would be responsible for the, the procurement and provisioning of that de development. The reason why I said that is because you could still do this with, with FCOE, right? It's a bit more, um, it's a bit more personality uh, conflicted, though, because what can happen is that you, you see, when you're looking at merging the traffic onto uh, it's a bad word you're not merging you're, you're basically consolidating the traffic onto the same the same equipment the question is that who's responsible becomes something of a, of a concern if it's all one team fine no problem uh, the advantages are that you have you have fewer pieces of equipment to buy because it's all working under the Ethernet system. You can put, you know, on a 40 gig network or a 100 gig network or even, you know, 10 gig networks, you can consolidate your traffic and you can run anything on anyone. It becomes much more dynamic and you can, um, you can kind of, if you're wrong in your predictions of, of what you want for your traffic, it's very easy to allocate more bandwidth to one side or the other. Right now, it's let's say you get you get your uh, bandwidth and you want 50 storage, 50% Ethernet, and then you come to find out, well, you know what? I didn't really need that. I, I wanted more of a 60/40 or a 70/30. Not a problem. I can I can make that change, and I don't have to change my hardware underneath. Um, it 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 winds up being much more of a holistic question, like management, uh, you know, procurement, provisioning, you know. Uh, Budgeting, those are the questions of, of become much more uh, influential in making that determination. But but from a from a storage perspective, from an actual fiber channel perspective, you wouldn't notice the difference. I mean, it comes up as a fiber channel HPA on the host, and on the network, it's still a fiber channel fabric. It's managed exactly the way it was. You do the same zoning as you currently. It doesn't matter if it's over Ethernet or, or fiber channel. From a technology perspective, from a fiber channel technology perspective, it's it's the same thing. So it, it, it really has to do with you know going through the checklist of finding out where the thresholds are of um, you know whether it be budgetary reasons or or, or personnel reasons or, or procurement or or budgeting cycles right so we have different budgeting cycles for network as we do for storage than we do for servers so all these things take into take into play and that they're not exactly easy to isolate that's pretty interesting so it kind of it kind of leads me to some of my other questions like as we look at these other protocols and these other especially these other storage technologies um, you mentioned things that were geo dispersed 
Uh, and that, you know, we see a lot of those geodispersed products um, being, being talked about as software defined, right? So now you talk about, oh, well, it's software defined storage. It takes the locally attached NVMe uh, or, or whatever kind of card is in there or disk or whatever it may be. And it consolidates it and presents it out as an object or whatever. A lot of these are based on Ethernet technologies. So as you, and people are, it's kind of like the new architecture, right? It's a lot more common if you're going to do something net new for it to have that kind of software-based scale based on standardized servers. Um, mm -hmm. So when people are doing things like that, does that lend itself to doing something like FCOE when you invest today? Because in the future of your architecture, if you choose to software-define a bunch of stuff, you're much better off with an Ethernet-type basis over a traditional fiber channel basis? In theory, yes. Um, so, so basically, if if you wanted to have just this, this architecture, let's say I put together a, a leaf spine architecture with with hosts um, connected to leaves, connected to a spine, connected to another leaf, connected to storage, um, and I just wanted to say I'm going to arbitrarily and dynamically allocate which ones I want to use. Uh, that makes perfect sense, right? I want to be able to use. Um, you know, whatever stores platform that I want at any given point in time, and I can change it on the fly, and I can allocate, you know, network provisioning on the fly for whatever I have to come up with. That makes that that is the, you know, the holy grail, and one of the things that you know, uh, FCOE uh, would be fantastic for. So the question winds up being, what's the because, what's the but, what's the however, and the answer is that it turns out that. The, the segmentation of a network into deterministic and non-deterministic categories and classes is not yet a well-understood thing inside of networks. So what you'd have to do is you'd say, let's say, for example, you have a, an environment like OpenStack where you want to take your Nova server and you want to – because I can do it with Fiber Channel right now and I can do it with Ethernet right now. And so those are separate entities because of the fact that I talk to the Nova server from a, a fiber channel perspective, or I can do it from a, an Ethernet perspective, and I can talk to the switches as an Ethernet. I can talk to an Ethernet switch, and I can talk to a fiber channel switch, and I can talk to the targets, and so on and so on. But what I can't do right now, and I'm, just, I, I'm not trying to pick on OpenStack. This is just an example, you know, and, and things can change over time. But what I can't do very well is uh, yet is say to this Ethernet switch, I'm going to keep you relatively dumb from the Ethernet perspective and make you relatively smart from a fiber channel perspective and establish a fiber channel forwarder inside of a class of service with a specific bandwidth that can be pushed back to the net pushed back through the network to the host and to the target at the same time through the same port as something that is just a traditional Ethernet environment. And and that's the problem, which is that that the consolidation that's so great for traditional environments is not yet mature enough inside of a software-defined system so that you can get reliable um, segmentation of the, of the wire to report the types of traffic that you need. For example, if I have a, if I have a link from a server to a switch, and that link is 10 gig, and I want half of it to be used for fiber channel over Ethernet and half of it to be used for regular Ethernet. And I use the software-defined system to tell the Ethernet side of the switch to talk to the Ethernet side of the, the host. How much bandwidth does that link 
come up with for the host? The entirety. The entirety. And if I do the same thing for the storage, how much does this host think it has? The entirety. You got it. So if if that is what the host thinks, it's going to send the entirety of the information thinking it's got that. Now, granted, if, if it's if the if the switch is set up correctly, the quality of service will actually solve some of those problems. But that there are other things that we do with Ethernet links that aggregate bandwidth or or disaggregate bandwidth that make these calculations very difficult. So until we can have that reporting on either side and that management on either side of, of what the networks do, there's more than just the storage traffic aspect of it that needs to be solved in order to get that to work end to end. It's it's a it's much more much more involved problem uh, once you start getting into large systems. That's that's a that's a really good answer that tells me that we're not a hundred percent sure what's going to happen just yet and that things are still shifting. Um, because my my question my follow up to you is going to be where I think it's going is that we're start fiber channel starting to slowly it's not going to die, but it's slowly moving more and more towards a corner case. Um, not necessarily like as small of a corner case as FICON, but when I look at things like people using InfiniBand for RDMA, although I wonder why they're not using Ethernet, um, or or you know what what's happening with NVMe, um, how fast Ethernet's ramping up versus fiber channel, um, and things like that, it makes me it makes it feel like net new decisions and also also future you know kind of future proofing leads towards ethernet type architectures or even other types of fabrics that doesn't mean well, it's dead it just means it's leading it, maybe it's 60 40 today maybe it's eventually 70 30 uh, as far as decision making from a point in time perspective it, it's it's difficult to tell because you know we were talking about predictions and, and exaggerations and, and anything is possible in the future right you know the, the crystal ball is always murky um you know but the the analyst reports that I've seen, you know, whether it be IDC or, or Forrester or, or any of the others that, you know, are looking at the actual port count that are, are being used for storage. Fiber Channel still has a pretty hefty curve left to go. Um, and it may be a corner case, but it's a pretty big corner. Um, the, the, the issue here is that, that the sweet spot of, of scale is still something that needs to be addressed. Uh, remember, I said I can do 10,000, 20,000 ports of fiber channel and still have predictable performance throughout. Right? It's a it's a scalable performance metric based upon because of the way that it's actually developed. If I take 500 ports of iSCSI or five or 5,000 ports of iSCSI or 15,000 ports of iSCSI, I'm going to get very different performance um, curves. You know, it, with based on the same architecture. And the same thing with NVMe. We we know that we're going to get um, uh, we need to do deterministic storage for NVMe. That's why people are really curious about NVMe and and how to put it into practice because a lot of the people who are used to NVMe are host people or they're storage media people, and it's the networking guys, it's the storage networking guys that are going to have to play the largest role in making it really work because if, you, if you've got FCOE experience, the NVMe over fabrics is going to be a breeze because of the fact that you will know what it's like to have to say, I need to have this deterministic storage work on a non-deterministic network. 
that's that's what FCOE is. That's what NVMU or Fabrics for for uh, for Rocky is. Um, and uh, otherwise, you're going to be using an iWarp metaphor. That's the that's the routable well, Rocky V2 is routable too, but but the IP based approach to doing NVMU is iWarp, and and that's a legitimate approach too. Um, but that is that is similar to saying the you know iSCSI non-deterministic approach versus the deterministic approach. Again, anytime you you start messing around with with loss of storage, stroke, deterministic storage, you have to think in a different way than if you're just basically throwing storage packets on a wire. The the two are mutually incompatible, and and that's where I think you're going to find up with a lot of people like you know what. Fiber channel is understood. I'm just going to do that. You know, I don't have to worry about it. Um, and and they may be right. It, it's a it's a it's a valid approach. It's going to be it's going to be fine. It's going to work, um, and it's going to be equally as reliable. So it's it's not it's not. Um, don't forget the, the whole thing about you know one storage protocol will rule them all means that you're going to be ruled by one storage protocol. You know, the users all of a sudden have to be. You know, conformist as well, and I'm pretty sure both of you have had enough of a variety in your end user population to seriously question how well that's going to work out. Absolutely. So we're uh, thank you so much, by the way. So we're we're getting towards the end here, and we have one question that we didn't want to leave without. Um, okay. We see a lot of things around. You mentioned it too. Um, software defined networking. And even network function virtualization, and obviously there's big conversations around SDN um, and what ACI and those kind of things lean to, as well as NFV and where OpenStack and things like that are going. Um, our question's actually a little bit uh, maybe further out than that, which is just really the whole standardization process, right? So mm -hmm. we see a lot of standardizations of servers and them being basic building blocks by which people consume things that are software defined. Um, and more and more functionality is coming out of that, more and more power. And as developers are, you know, software is eating the world and developers are the new kingmakers and all these things, what we, we aren't quite seeing it yet from my perspective in the network world. So is, is Cisco um, seeing this as standardization is coming from a fabric and network perspective, or is there too much, are there too many variables or too many unsolved variables for that to be the standard yet today? Oh well, that's a that's a difficult question. I, I think it's probably more the latter. I think I think that it's sort of like trying to predict the weather five days from now and then another fifteen days from now, because the, the sheer number of variables that can affect things out of the blue is um, is too much. I, I do know that that Cisco is looking at um, you know doing the best thing for its customers, and and right now that that happens to be focusing on providing a wide variety of solutions that solve a, you know a large number of problems that they've got and some of those solutions are, are, are custom some of those solutions are specific to Cisco based technologies um, some of those solutions are standards based and storage just happens to be one of the ones that's much more uh, easy to point to for me to say look this is you know all of our storage solutions are um, more or less you know standards based and then when you start to look at the intersection of the software-defined networks and the software-defined storage, then you're looking at this hybrid approach with a lot of different variables. The, the, going back to that triangle, when you start to add in software, you're really pushing away from the performance side and into the management 
and scalability side, right? Because you have to create software layers that you can then abstract out and create buffers so that you can do more things. But, but that adds more bits. And a virtual bit is always more expensive than an actual bit because you always have to have a representation of one for the other. And that means your performance is going to go. So that, that triangle point, which is performance heavy, doesn't lend itself to that kind of, of an environment. So Cisco's approach is to be able to make sure that we cover the entire triangle. And that means that, that if we're going to focus on you know, a standards-based approach, um, it's going to solve a particular standards-based problem. And same thing with custom and same thing with, with software-defined. But um, it's, it's too difficult to say that there's a, you know, a, a single guiding force because that we, have, we have many different customers that you know, don't align to that particular type of, of force. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. So, um, you know, we know you're a busy guy and uh, you're, you're waiting to uh, kick off probably some, some more meetings this evening. But uh, wanted to uh, wrap this up. So thanks, first of all, for, for letting us know kind of about the industry, the standards, the protocols. Uh, I, I think we can pretty much successfully say that Fiber Channel is not dead, um, although that will be the title. Um, it'll be intriguing. It'll be uh, uh, a clickbait, if you will. Um, but it's not, it's not dead yet, uh, and it's still got a healthy amount of life with it. Um, so where can we find you next? We always like to hear where our guests are going to pre- be presenting. Um, you know, My guess is that you're, you kind of travel all around, but uh, where, where can folks find you in the upcoming future? Well, I am actually presenting here at DSI uh, on, in a couple days. Um, I do haunt the Ethernet Storage Forum a lot, and I present on Bright Talk for the Ethernet Storage Forum for SNEA. I'm also going to be presenting at Cisco Live in July, and I will be haunting the uh, Intel Developer Forum in August, and uh, probably the, yeah, I'll be at the Storage Developer Conference for SNEA at the in the in the fall in September. Those are those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. Oh, and nope. the, of course, the Flash Memory Summit. I'm going to be doing uh, a bunch of stuff there too. Awesome. Very cool. So a busy schedule. So great ways to, to see and, and see you live. Uh, and then what's the best way to get, get a hold of you? We're, we're big on social media, um, so we'd love to you know, get you out there. Uh, what, where are you on Twitter, your blog, things like that? Yeah, so um, my blog is uh, jmets.com. I also do um, some blogging for Cisco's blogs. But my Twitter handle is probably the fastest and easiest way to get uh, to me, and that's at Dr. Metz, D-R-J-M-E-T-Z, on Twitter. Yeah, I think it's I think it's actually key to point out. So your blog and Twitter, so J Metz. Your your name is J, but it's actually just the letter J. Yep. Yep. Okay. Very cool. And then uh last question for you, Jay. Uh we, we like to get a kind of insider's perspective on, on how you're staying up on the industry or maybe something personal that you're you're reading or websites or things like that. So what do you follow that keeps you kind of ahead of the curve? Um, and then is there something maybe, uh, personally that you'd like to recommend? Oh, um, oh, this is a great question. Um, there are a couple of, of different, uh, things that I follow on a regular basis. I, I follow Greg Schultz's storage IO newsletter closely. Uh, he's a, a wealth of information. Um, I'm a big fan of, of the work that he's done. Um, and a personal, I, I, I just finished, uh, this doesn't have to be technology, right? No. Nope. Okay, so I just finished a book, um, a, a really 
surprisingly excellent book um, called uh, uh, Washington, A Life. It's from by an author named Ron Chernow, and it's about George Washington. And it, I, I highly recommend the book. It was a, a stellar read. Awesome. Uh, well, cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us. Certainly appreciate it. So with that, let's shut it down. Let Jay get to doing what he's doing, and both Brian and I can uh, sign off. So with that, we're going to shut down the hot out. My name is Brent Piotti. My name is Brian Carpenter. And Jay, thank you very much for being on today. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely.